Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, today we're going to continue a series that we kicked off at the beginning of this month called GoPro. And uh, the whole concept of this series is how do we take that next step and go to that next level, whether it's in our personal life or our professional life. At the beginning of April, we, we looked about we looked at how, what's a skill that's going to help us to make that transition, and we looked at how correction and how we handle correction is that first essential skill. And then last week at Easter, we, um, this was still part of the series, just didn't kind of know it. It was how do we go pro in our faith? How do we take that next step into our faith and understand what the cross, what Easter so what is? And I would encourage you, um, if you didn't uh, get to kind of be present last week or watch it, I, I would encourage you to watch last Sunday's message because it really does seek to unpack the so what of Easter. And I'll give you a bit of a disclaimer. Don't listen to it on a podcast, even though you can do that in the app. Watch it um, because I think that'll help kind of capture what does it look like to take that next step in our, our faith life as well. Today what I'm going to do is shift to a little bit more of a practical uh, bulk of our life uh, topic around work. And so what does it look like to go pro in our work life, our professional life? Because if you were to do an audit of your time, what you would find is that a bulk of your time of your waking hours is spent working. Right? You will spend a vast majority of your life dedicated to doing something where you get paid, whether in gratitude or in actual dollar signs, right? Because this idea of work is essential. And for many of us, uh, we spend so much of our life preparing for work, and then we get in, and we're there. And many of us can find ourselves being stuck, feel like we're in a holding pattern, wondering what's next, or is this really what I'm going to do for the next 25, 30 years, or 40, 50 years of my life? What I want to talk about today is, what does it look like to go pro? And I want to start by uh, giving you one of my favorite verses. It won't be what we talk about today, but it'll be the jumping off point for what, uh, what it looks like to go pro in our work life. It's a Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. It's one of those Proverbs uh, that I, I, I go to a lot, I think about a lot, because it says that, do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not be served before officials of low rank. It's this, this simple proverb that really kind of casts this inspirational statement above our lives. It's like, look, if, if, if you're willing to work hard, you won't stay stuck. You'll stand before kings. And this is a verse that I, I really do. It's kind of served as a, a kind of this inspiration rallying cry for me in my professional life that as helpful as it is, and I think it would even argue there's street cred because the guy who writes this is a king. And so he's like, hey, from personal experience, the people who get in front of me, they're all really good. Really bad people don't get in front of me. The only the great ones stand before me. And, and so there's some street cred to this statement as well. Even if you're not sure if you believe the Bible, if you're not sure you, where you stand in the spiritual thing, the fact that a king writes a statement about what it takes to get in front of the king is worth listening to. But it doesn't answer the question of how. Because it's good to have this inspirational thought, but how do you do it? How do you step into that professional kind of next level? And ironically, I think there's a little bit of the biography of the person who writes this statement that gives us that clue of how. See, the guy who writes this proverb about those people who are skilled standing before kings is a guy named King Solomon. He's considered to be one of the wisest kings who've ever lived, one of the wisest men who've ever lived. He, he lived about 3,000 years ago. 
an incredibly profoundly wise individual. He was the third king of a nation known as Israel, a nation that still exists today that was at that time this ancient Jewish state. Um, He was the third king in their history. And it was not just the fact that he was a king that he saw greatness stand in front of him, but he had the experience of growing up in a house with a father named David who was Israel's greatest king. So it wasn't that he just had the personal experience of being a king. I think he also saw demonstrated the explanation of this passage that he writes for us. He saw in his father, not just who demonstrated this, but who also, I think, modeled for us how we can do it too. Because here's the thing. It's really easy to say, well, this is a king. It's easy for a king to say uh, what excellence is or what greatness in professional life is. He's a king. But his father, David, didn't start off with royal blood. His father had humble beginnings and rose to this great level to become one of the greatest leaders in Jewish history. And it's his father, a statement written about his father in Psalm 78, 72 that I want to look at today because in that simple sentence, 10 words, right, is this declaration of how you and I can go pro at work. And here's the benefit. If you're here today and you're not sure what you believe about faith or, or religion in general, you're not even sure where you stand with this whole God thing, what I'm going to unpack for you today is going to be so applicable to your life that if you just want to, like if you've been invited and you're here today and you're just like, you're not really comfortable with the God thing, every time I say God, just stick your fingers in your ear, okay? This is how confident I am about this text because what we're gonna unpack today is gonna sound like something that came out of a Harvard Business Review book, but the problem is that it did not get published 30 30 weeks ago in some like bestseller in the business world. This was written 3,000 years ago. And the words written 3,000 years ago are considered today to be revolutionary in management theory and in the business sector of how to grow and develop yourself. This is something that you think you would read in Wired or Entrepreneur or Fast Company when, in fact, it was written 3,000 years ago out of the experience of a man who's considered to be one of the wisest men who have ever lived, who was gifted that wisdom from God Almighty. And in Psalm 78, 72, we see a model, uh, a kind of an instruction, not just an inspirational thought from Proverbs, but an instructional kind of model of David's life where we see in this passage three areas that you and I can focus in on. And in those, focusing on those three areas, you and I can take what we learn from him and apply it to our lives to go pro in our own professional worlds too. So let's jump in. Psalm 78, 72, and like I referenced earlier, it's actually in uh, the Encounter Church app. If you click on message notes, it'll already be preloaded for you. And it'll also be behind me on the screen as I read through it. It says, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands, he led them. Now, I like to give context. So let me give you a little bit of a backdrop for this and it'll help make some sense. Um, David is roughly king of Israel about 3,000 years ago. This gets written after David dies. And so someone is taking the, David's life and is summarizing his professional career in a sentence. This entire psalm, if you were to read through it, is really um, a, a poem written about Israel after David and Solomon, after a series of kings, they fall into a kind of a dark place as a nation. And the poet is writing these words, capturing the current condition of the nation, and he gets down to the bottom of the psalm and he identifies the problem with the nation is in leadership. 
He says, what we have is a problem of leadership. And our, if we had better leaders, if we had quality leaders, then we could, if there was someone a little bit more professional in that role, then we would see hope and transformation in our nation. And this is why this, this psalmist ends with this statement about David, because he essentially grabs hold of David and says, David is the type of leader. He's the model for the type of leader we need to step in to this place and this nation. And this is kind of the backdrop is that there's this rich history behind why David gets chosen. And you see at the beginning, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart. So you kick off this first trait that jumps out at you is this idea of David's integrity of heart, which is a strange place to start when you talk about going pro, because it tends to be when we, we talk about professional development or we, however you would frame it in your professional life, we tend to start around our skills, our abilities, right? Those subtle things like nonverbal cues. How can you come in and position yourself at the table so that you have presence and people listen to you? And in fact, the psalmist says, no, let's start where the critical component, the foundation of going pro in our professional life. It's character. And he chooses David because there's this rich history. You see, in the history of Israel, Israel, David's not the first king ever. David's just the first great king of Israel. David is, in fact, the second king of Israel. The guy right before him is King Saul. And King Saul, just to give you a little bit of a backdrop for him, King Saul had, like, he had presence. He walked into a room and people looked at him. They listened to him. He knew how to boss people around and sound like he knew what, like, you move over there and do that with gusto, right? I mean, he would walk into a room and he's a foot higher. Because I don't know if you know this, but psychologically, it's been documented that as humans, we tend to look up to people who are taller, Right? And that's just not like a duh fact. That's if you walk into a room and you're taller, people will tend to kind of place on you without hearing a single word that you're smarter than they are, that you're a better leader than they are, just by being taller. And this happens to Saul. And for those people who are tall in the room, you've probably recognized that. You walk in the room and your shorter counterparts have to work harder to get the focus that you get just strolling up in there and people are like, he's got swagger, right? And it's like, no, we're just short. It's not swagger, we're just short. And Saul has got that. He walks into the room and everyone's like, mm-hmm, he's the king, clearly. He's a foot taller than everyone else. He's just a better physical specimen. He makes better decisions. He has a better outlook. He can see danger before it even gets to us because he's taller than we are. And Saul begins to lead this nation. And what starts to happen is while he has all the intangibles and while he's popular, he starts to make poor decisions. Not decisions around his abilities. He's a fighter. He starts to make poor character decisions that start to dishonor God and start to disgrace the nation. And eventually what happens is that Saul finds himself with abilities that put him in a place that his character cannot sustain him. Which is a scary thought. David Gergen, who's a professor at Harvard Kennedy School, said it this way, and I think this just kind of captures this sentiment, that he, he commented that someone with, he calls it capacity, someone with capacity without character is dangerous. 
Someone with character, without capacity, is just ineffective. That a great leader is a leader that has capacity, but is also built on a foundation of character. And Saul lacked character. Let's jump up 3,000 years, right? We saw this this past week, this tragic news story this past week. Right? One of the, the best tight ends in Patriots' recent history, signs in 2012, right? And I don't know if you noticed, if you know the backdrop, but when Aaron Hernandez signs with the Patriots in his extension, he signs for $40 million as a 22-year-old. $40 million, the largest contract ever awarded to a tight end in NFL history. The second, second largest extension contract in NFL history for a tight end. This, this kid explodes on the national scene. He helps to win a national championship at the University of Florida, steps into the Patriots, is catching passes from Tom Brady, one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history, right? Everything is going for him. In 2012, a $40 million contract, and he says this, Gleefully and proud on that day, I am set for life, a really good life. And yet, 10 months later, 10 months later, a body is found and his life starts spiraling. Bill Belichick was recently asked prior to what happened this week, what's one word that you would use to, to sum up his life? And he says, tragedy. And then we get news report of him being found. And it's not just in the headlines of the newspapers that it doesn't matter how gifted you are, if your character is flawed, if there's character defects that eventually you implode. It happens in the very storylines of our life too, doesn't it? I've never seen a marriage destroyed because someone could not operate a spreadsheet. I've never seen a marriage destroyed because someone couldn't put together an agenda. I've never seen relationships ripped apart because someone didn't know how to give a public presentation or, or explain Krebs cycle or how cellular metabolism works. I've never seen any of those things. What ultimately derails, ostracizes, and destroys lives are not issues of competency. They're issues of character. And that's why the psalmist starts there. He says, you can have all the abilities in the world and you can have all the appearance of the world, but if your heart is not right, life's not right. And eventually it affects your leadership style. And that's why David is lifted up. Because to, to David Gergen's point, that capacity without character means danger, and Saul had lived out that dangerous life. I would say, just let me hit a pause here, and let me go into your professional, like move out of your professional life, step into your personal life. If you're single and you're dating someone, or you're engaged, you're looking at someone, if there's character issues now, please remember that you're getting their best foot in this season, right? My wife started dating me. I had hair. That's all I need to say. I had flowing locks. Right? The best you got in appearance sake is right now. And if there's character issues, they do not resolve themselves on their own. People don't drift into good character choices. They decide good character choices. And I would just say, man, let me just throw that one out there because maybe that's for someone today. But character is foundational professionally and personally. 
And it's a dangerous thing to play around and to get lost and completely miss the importance of character. But back to the topic. So David is held up as this example, as the model, right? Because he has integrity of heart. He has this character. And so what I want to do, and I'm going to do it a couple different times, and so just hold on. If you've never read the Bible, or if you're not familiar with a lot of stories of the Bible, I'm going to be really succinct. I'm not going to point out all these different references, but I'm going to give you life story moments of David to illustrate what this one sentence is saying, because David is loaded as an example and a model. For, for what character and competency looks like. So first of all, you have David being held up. And what David had, I think that was unique, that you and I can cultivate, because remember, this is about practical kind of in our own lives. David had self-awareness. Because if you want to know, how do you cultivate character? How do you, how do you start to grow in this character realm that's essential for, for your professional life or your personal life to go pro? Well, it starts with this one skill. We don't have time to talk about all the other skills. But this one skill is self-awareness. And David has it. He demonstrates it throughout his life. You can see it in multiple stories, multiple occasions of David's life where he has self-awareness. Let me give you a couple examples and also a couple of points because part of Encounter Church goes beyond, we go beyond just Sunday morning. We step into these, another environment we call life groups where people um, meet together regularly to kind of take the message and flesh it out deeper into their personal and professional lives. And one of, there's been a couple of things that we've done in the last six months that I think has direct impact to this. One is that uh, the groups were encouraged over the course of a month to memorize Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Okay, this very simple passage written in the book of Psalms, which was the official kind of like hymnal or songbook of the ancient Jewish people, written, most of it written by David himself. One of those songs or poems is David's writing of Psalm 139. And at the bottom of Psalm 139, he puts this prayer in where he says, um, God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David had this awareness. And so I encourage the life group, uh, life group leaders to encourage the people who are meeting, hey, memorize this psalm. Even if you're not sure where you stand on spiritual things, this is a great thing to memorize because it will cultivate self-awareness because it'll be this little subtle statement sitting inside your brain that calls you to look back inward at yourself and look at the reasons, right? Look, look at, listen to the voices that are behind the choices you're making in life, becoming aware of those things. That this psalm was written by David because David regularly prayed, God, tune my heart. Help me to hear what's going on in there because and if there is something offensive, lead me in the way everlasting. But then also encourage the life group leaders, don't just ask God to help you become self-aware. You really want to get self-aware fast. Ask someone around you the simple question, hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Ask your kids that. Ask your spouse that. Ask your significant other that. Ask your roommate that. Ask your coworkers that. And if you're lucky, they'll give you the honest answer. And I promise you, it's not all wonderful, marvelous, magnificent, great, heroic, or handsome. That's not the only descriptors you will hear. They'll also say, well, sometimes you're selfish. Sometimes you're inconsiderate. Sometimes you're not listening. 
Sometimes you have a tendency to overspend. Sometimes you have a tendency to fill in the blank. That asking that question, not just of God, but of others around you, what's it like to be on the other side of me, will cultivate, will cultivate self-awareness and will help you identify areas where you can grow in your character so that you can go pro. And then I would encourage you if you were like, well, there are some areas I feel trapped in. There's some, some areas, some choices, some, some things in my life that I feel restrained by. Then I would encourage you to go back and least listen to last week's message on Easter where Easter is a declaration that we can be free and we can be forgiven and that some of us are stuck in the past of our prison, our, our prison of our past and our choices we've made and the regrets we have, and we've allowed that to define who we are and that the beauty of Easter is that is not all you are. That the beauty of Easter is that you can be free and forgiven and that you can move out of that prison and step into the present redeemed. And, and that's this beautiful kind of movement that happens out of Easter. And for some of you, that may be your next step out of this message, just to go back and watch that video online to, to process through that prison you're still stuck in, that you're allowing to define who you are. The, but self-awareness and character, like David Gergen said, isn't the only thing, right? I mean, you can have character and still be ineffective. You can still not take that next level. So the, the psalmist actually has another component. He says that David shepherded them with integrity of heart, but with skillful hands he led them. So he moves from the heart, the character of David, to the hands of David. And he makes this very subtle statement, five words, but I think it's, it's powerful. He says, with skillful hands he led them. Now, in the last 15 years, there's been this revolutionary idea within the business sector of strengths-based leadership. But this is exactly what David was doing 3,000 years ago. David was leading out of his strengths. He was focused on growing his strengths. That he appeared before the king because of his strengths, not because of his weaknesses. Which sounds like really like, oh, yeah, obviously, but... Your life has probably been like mine. I got my first job when I was 15 years old. Um, I worked as a pharmacy tech. I started off stocking the shelves at a pharmacy and then eventually was a pharmacy tech. Um, I, my kind of, at that point in life, wanted to go into school and become a research in infectious diseases and design drugs and cures. That was kind of like my path and undergrad biochemistry and then I became a Christian and that's a whole other story and how I ended up here. But at 15, I worked at a pharmacy because I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I remember working really hard, and things were going well. I mean, like, as a 15-year-old, man, I was making bank. I had a car. It had, it had a radio and a CD player I installed. You know, back in the days, you'd strap a CD player, like, on your arm. And, I mean, like, so to have one in my car, and it maybe bounced. You know, a car hit a bump, and it, I lost it. But this is, I, I'm, I'm, hey, girls, yeah. Right? So, I mean, I was, like, thinking I'm something special, and I'm loving the job, and loving just kind of doing it. I go from 15 to 18 doing that, and then I work some other jobs and end up working at a bank um, through my college years, and then going to grad school, still working at a bank, and then I start to make this transition into my professional career. And then, so eight years after I start working, I get hit upside the head with this idea I'd never heard of before, first time ever, called a performance review. Didn't even know what it was. They're like, oh, we're going to have your performance review next Friday, so I'm going to go ahead and put that on your calendar. 
oh, okay, you're reviewing my performance. That sounds interesting. So I go in, and there's this document. It's like four or five page document. And he's like, personal appearance. Right? And it's just like goes through all of these things. Stuff that we'd never talked about. Expectations I never knew of. We're just walking through it. And it's like, yeah, on a scale of one to four, you were, you were a two on that one. Which is, does not meet expectations. And I was like, ugh. Right? And, but the whole idea of what a performance review was framed to me was a performance review is how you can get better. But I walked out of that one hour and a half meeting hearing about all the things I was doing wrong. Not the things I was doing right. And look, I, I'm okay getting feedback. But it shouldn't be called a performance review. It should be called all the things that you stink at so that we can talk about it. But don't call it performance. Performance sounds like we're going to talk about how well you perform and what you're doing to move the ball forward, how you're making a difference. And instead, we talked about for 90 minutes all the areas of life that I stunk at. And a lot of organizations operate that way. That they may say they value strengths, but at the end of the day, when you sit in front of your boss and they're evaluating your work, oftentimes the emphasis is placed on the weakness not the unique strengths that you have. And David did something radical, something that's just now being talked about in business literature. David reversed it and operated out of his strengths. He led from his strengths, not his weakness. You do not want me to walk into your life in any way, shape, or form and organize something. There's, a, there's details you don't want me to step into your life. So, for me to try to lead out of my life with organization and detail is probably not the best move for me. I have strengths. I have like two strengths. I got 200 weaknesses, but those two strengths, they're unique to me. And I, a better use of my time is to devote my energy into developing my strengths, not trying to just deal with my weaknesses. And David does that. He is a warrior. He's a thinker. He's a poet. He's a strategist. And throughout David's life, you see this demonstrated, right? So I'd say the jump in, like, how do you navigate? How do you actually develop skillful hands? Here's how you do it. Two things. I think the first is you strengthen your strengths. I've said make strengths your focus. So make the lead foot in this journey strengthening your strengths. But here's the thing. You've got to know them before you can grow them. Most people I talk to do not know what they're good at because they've been thrown into these systems where all they do is, like me in my first experience, they're told all the things they do wrong. They're not told what they do right. They're not told what they're good at. God came up with that thing you're good at. He made you. He formed you. And he said, I'm going to put that gift, and I'm going to put that gift, and I'm going to give that strength, and I'm going to mix all that together, and no one else in human history is going to have that kind of combination. Bam. And then the world comes along and says, well, well you're kind of lacking in this, and you're lacking in this, and you're lacking in this. And there's no attention paid. No one compliments. No one focuses in on. And it, let me hit pause. Jump over here. If you're a parent, one of my prayers one of my, like our family's prayers is, God, help me to see the strengths you've placed inside of my daughter and help me call them out now. 
There's a world waiting to tell her everything that she's not good enough in, everything that she doesn't measure up in. God, I want to make sure that at home I identify early on the things that she is because that's where you put your fingerprints. And that's what I want to foster. And we, as, as parents, will focus in on strengthening our strengths. Our marriage is framed around our strengths. There are things I don't do in the house, not because we have traditional or non-traditional views of marriage. There are things in my house that I do because I'm good at them. And there are things in my house that my wife does because she's good at them. Because if we reversed, our family would be living under a bridge sucking on bouillon cubes for sustenance. Like, we understand that. And so we apply this even in our relationship. Now, boop, back over. All right, so in our professional life. So we've got this reality of like focusing on your strengths. So know them. What are you good at? What do people compliment you? What do you see as the pattern of your life that you've always seemed to be able to excel at? And do what David did. So if you go back through David's life, um, most people, if, even if they haven't really been around church a lot, are familiar with the story of David and Goliath, which is a great moment and understanding how David developed his strengths, right? David, small kid, probably about five feet tall, walks up to Goliath, who's about nine feet tall, and his lead foot, right, is God has delivered me from the mouth of a lion, from the claws of a bear. He will deliver me from you too. But inside of that statement is a very telling model. You see, David, throughout the course of his life, experiences challenges. So He's faithful in dealing with these wild animals who attacked his father's sheep. And now he's being faithful. He's taking a step up and he's pressing his strength to now an even bigger opponent. And he has that moment. Goliath falls, right? And then for those who, there's this other part of the story. David leaves that battle and then starts to serve King Saul. And he becomes the commander of a little tiny unit. And then he becomes one of his generals. You see, David goes from when he's young fighting animals to then fighting Goliath to then fighting small bands of people to ultimately leading an army fighting other nations. That David put himself in position where his strengths were outside of his comfort zone and he had to escalate his abilities. And it gave him an ability to grow. It's like hermit crabs, right? A hermit crab will grow to the size of his next shell. They'll leave this shell that is starting to get a little tight, and he'll scurry to another shell that's a little bit bigger, and he'll step into that, and he'll stay in that shell, even though it's a little bit bigger than what he's used to, and he grows into it. And for some of you professionally, that's your next step, is for you to kind of escalate the already giftedness that you have and push it out just a little bit further than what you're comfortable with right now. That's what David does. He escalates and he has this practice of always moving towards the challenge, not away from the challenge. That in your challenge is your opportunity to grow if it's your strength. Now, if it's not your strength, it can become potentially an opportunity for you to be frustrated. And that's what most of us do. We're thrown into challenges and our weaknesses and we don't rise to them because that's not our area. But we can't ignore our weaknesses. So how do we deal with our weaknesses. If our response to our strengths is to strengthen them, then our response to our weakness is to weaken them. And the way that we weaken, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to kind of bullet point this out. One is discipline. At the end of the day, there is nothing. It's just, it's discipline. It's grit. It's doing it because you have to do it. 
And, you know, there's some, every, every one of us has things that we do in our job that we don't like, we hate. And we wish we could get rid of it, but for right now, it's what we have. And so what you do with those things is you, you spend your discipline and your energy on it. But while you're doing that, you also keep an eye to these two other options. One is that you can develop. Maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, you're like a 1 or a 2 at that ability. You'll never be a 10. Okay? I'm never going to be asked to organize, arrange, do any kind of detail work. Right? Nobody, unless they're just desperate. No one's ever going to ask me that. But I can develop it and move from a 2 to a 4 or a 5 and at least be like manageable. I might not be good at it, but I can at least kind of, kind of get by. And then ultimately, even like now as a leader of an organization, I keep an eye to this third dynamic, which may not be for everyone in the room, but it, it, I think it can eventually become, is this idea of delegation, where you start to look at the team, look at the people you're surrounded by and say, is there someone on this team that this seems to be their strength? They'll actually be energized if they can push into this responsibility and to start to develop them and start to eventually delegate the task to them to take the next steps. That when we strengthen our strengths and we start to take these actions to weaken our weakness, we can find ourselves in a place where we're starting to go pro if it's being built off a foundation of a character that's growing. Now, the last secret. This is the last thing I want to give you, just a few minutes of the secret of David's life. It's tucked inside of this passage. It's hidden, in fact. You can read over this like I have multiple times, and you can miss this third trait that I think is the essential driving force of David's life. But before I tell you, I want to tell you a random history quote. In fact, um, I like reading history, and there was, um, I'm right now, I kind of jump into specific time periods and study them. And so right now, I'm studying the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is something that I I'm pretty sure I remember in grade school about pigs, a barbecue roast, and some missiles, but that's pretty much all I had. And, and so now I'm like, oh, I wonder what the Cuban Missile Crisis really was. And so in the process of studying, here's what stood out. The Cuban Missile Crisis is one of these dramatic periods of American history that most of us don't realize how dramatic it was. There's 13 days in the month of October in 1962. The, the Russians have um, been smuggling missiles, nuclear warheads, into Cuba, which is just 90 miles south of Florida. And this U-2 spy plane from the American government flies over, snaps pictures, and sees a nuclear missile being assembled. This missile has the capability to hit any city in the East Coast, which is where a vast majority of Americans live. And in 1962, the American government realizes for the first time that the Russians could actually cause a nuclear wasteland on our continent. Before, the Russians didn't have the capability to get a missile all the way to where we were. And so we were kind of safe in the midst of that. But now the Russians were setting up shop 90 miles south of us, which put us within their range. So what happens is in this 13-day, this escalation, a group of people known as XCOM start meet together and what forms out of that is known as the Cuban Missile Crisis in history. During the course of that, there's a, a Navy blockade and a standoff where we're really close to, if, if the Russians push through the Navy blockade, then there may be military repercussions, and there's options being placed on the table, and one of the options is realistically us going to war and invading Cuba, and that already been a bad idea before, and potentially it could have escalated. And this is the first time, the only time in American history where the idea of a nuclear um, war was capable and possible. 
It gets to the point that through this missile crisis, um, a U-2 spy plane is shot down by the Russians. And Robert McNamara, who's the Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, puts this in as quoted through the course of this, where he says, I thought it was the last Saturday I would ever see. Think about that. The Secretary of Defense for our nation has a day on his job where he thinks this will be the last Saturday he ever sees. This is how dark it gets. And in the midst of these 13 days, the breakthrough moment happens with JFK sitting there listening to all the options being thrown on the table, all the dialogue and debate. And JFK, in his um, private time, had been reading a book called Guns in August. Guns in August was a book written about World War I and all the crazy scenarios that played out that led up to World War I, which which eventually led to World War II. So JFK was reading this book, and what he sees is how bad decisions and overreactions leads to the First World War, which eventually set up the nation for the Second World War, which created the most bloodiest history in like human civilization's history. More humans killed in that, that one century than ever before. It's insane. And so he looks at the table and he says, guys, I do not want future historians to write a book called Missiles in October. And it's in that statement that he reorients not only his own thinking, but eventually he reorients XCOM's thinking as well. Because he's able to push out of the hysteria of the hysteria of what's happening, and he starts to view the perspective of future historians. And he has a mindset change. And this mindset change is similar to what David has. David has a different mindset than what most people have in their professional careers. And you see it where it says, David shepherded them. David was a king. Shepherd's a weird word for a king, isn't it? But here's why. The history, if you unpack and dig into David's history, you find that David started off as a young kid, really kind of runny kid of a bunch of brothers older than him, which meant that he was solely responsible for taking care of his father's sheep. He was a shepherd. A shepherd was a lonely job. It meant that you spent a lot of time out in the open field with no one else around you, and all you had were sheep. You had to lead those sheep to places where they could eat. You had to lead those sheep to places where they could drink. And all along, you not only had to to guide them to have sustenance, you also had to provide security for them too. Which meant that when he stands before Goliath and he says, I've killed a lion, I've killed a bear, it's because he had to to protect the sheep. Because there are no gates, there are no pens. The shepherd is the gate that protects the sheep. And David shepherds these sheep as a young boy. And here's the key. He does it not because he values sheep. He does it because he values his relationship with his father. These are his father's sheep. And those sheep are special because his relationship with his father is special. And that meant that when no one else was watching, he risked his life. He worked hard. He he had long days because it, it was out of that relationship that he had with his dad. Then David becomes king. And now David is shepherding people, not just because the people are special, but because the relationship he has with his father in heaven is special. These are his father's people. God has said, Israel was my nation. He's like, God, these are your people, and I want to lead them 
because they're special to you. And I have a special relationship with you. That mindset, that motivation meant that David worked really hard, that David worked diligently, that David paid attention to his character and he paid attention to his competencies and his strengths. And he did that because his motivation was not how others would judge him, but because he was living out his life for that audience of one, his father in heaven, who at the end of the day would say, you did a great job leading my people. Last week, I saw this play out in my own house. My uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law flew in for the weekend. And the day before they arrived, my daughter, who's five, um, started working on their special gift. She began to make this special artwork for them. She worked hard on that artwork. And then it wasn't okay just to have artwork. She had to make the box in which the artwork fit inside of it so that she could have this gift present for them when, we, when my wife and her picked them up at the airport. And so she works Wednesday on this. And then they're almost late to the airport because she wakes up Thursday morning bright and early, not finished yet. She still had to work. And my wife's like, we got to go. And she's like, I'm not done with their gift. And I'm watching my daughter do something that I think is meant as an aspiration for all of us in our life. That what if we approached our work with the same level of detail and diligence, with the importance, not because of what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're shepherding school kids or spreadsheets. It doesn't matter what you do. It's the how you do it that matters. As we see in David's life, that what if, like what my daughter did, was the way that I approached, that out of my value for God and his relationship and my relationship with him, that I approached my work with that same level of detail and diligence. And that I made sure that my head, my mindset, my motivation, my heart, and my hands were being faithfully applied to the one who would say, one day, well done, good faithful servant. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for how you love and your grace. I pray that you would help us to be people who go pro in our professional lives, who would be people who are found to be diligent. Pray that you would encourage those who maybe feel stuck in the prison of their past, who maybe feel defined by choices they've made, that you would bring them freedom, forgiveness, and that they would be able to develop that character component. And God, I pray for wisdom and discernment for those who are in the room who are not sure what they're good at, who have been told their entire lives or most of their lives what they're not good at. And that we would be a people that work diligently, ultimately, knowing that we do all things for you. And it's in your incredible and beautiful name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Um, before we wrap up and you guys head out the um, next five minutes, one of the things we do is uh, at the end of every message, we kind of carve out space for a song. And the song is really meant to be to reflect that we use that message. If you notice in the app, it, there's a couple questions, and they're meant to, to kind of guide you so that as you go into your Monday, that you have some, some things that you can start to apply. That maybe there's a list that comes out of this message today. Maybe there's uh, some idea that stood out for you that you're like, you know what, I need to do that. And we want to carve out space and time for you to be able to think about that, to put a date or a time beside that, or to put a person in a conversation around that. Because it matters. Your life matters. 
You're not an accident. You were made on purpose. And we are here as a church to help you discover that purpose and to walk out that plan that God has for your life. And so we think this is a holy thing. This is a a special thing. And so we protect this time so that you can process through it. It's also a time where, as a church, for those who call Encounter Church home, to be able to practice our generosity, that as a church, we're incredibly generous in our community and around the world because we serve a God who is generous and how he's loved and how he's given and how he's served. And so we use this as a time for those who call Encounter Church home to be able to give back. And I would say if you're here today and you're processing through things, um, when you see that basket pass, maybe that's where you're, um, just feel free to drop a prayer request or, or whatever you're processing through, or maybe you want to learn more about the church or jump in and serve. That basket's there for you to also kind of help us, help you take some next steps in your life. But the band's going to lead us in the song. I want to invite you to stand up. And in the midst of that song, you process, you pray. And uh, when, the, when they're done, uh, you'll, you'll hear a couple announcements and you'll be dismissed. So thank you for being in Encounter Church today.